You're listening to the Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network brought to you by Lacrosse Boots. So here's what Lacrosse has recently done. They've taken their 100 plus years of experience to create a new line of lace-up hunting boots called the Navigator Series. Now the Navigator Series comes in two options, the Atlas for men and the Windrose for both men and women. Now if you want to find out more about their high-quality awesome boots, you need to go to lacrossefootwear.com. But I always wanted to, to run big game with Hound, and I'm not really the type of person that ever waits for something to happen. I kind of make it happen. She went to get on the one that I thought was the better of the two mules at the time, and he kind of started jumping around and <clears throat> being kind of, a, kind of a little brat, and she kind of went to working on him a little bit. I thought, well, one more reason to keep her around. A lot of houndsmen, if you notice, when they first start out, they they don't start out with the best the best stuff they could possibly get, you know. And uh, I was fortunate to have started out with really, really good stock. Uh, in the retriever game, and I mean, I was out throwing birds for dogs probably since I was about five years old my dad had, he was telling me a story the other day about showing up to a fourth of july field trial and getting teased because the dog's toenails are painted red white and blue so i kind of got put, i got put into it pretty young and Houndsman XP Podcast with your host, Steve Fielder, and me, Chris Powell. If you're ready to up your game to extreme performance, sit back, buckle up, and hang on for another exciting episode of Houndsman XP. Hey, Steve, the weather is still way too hot here. We're going to be in the 80, high 80s, low 90s with high humidity. But I'm still thinking about the upcoming hunting season. I'm seeing a lot of tech questions coming up on some of our electronic training equipment out there uh, from people that are, that are bear hunting. They're in full swing with bear, bear training season right now across the United States. Have you been seeing that a lot on social media? I have. You know, I've been thinking myself about getting up to the mountains of Virginia and doing a little training myself. And, uh, yeah, you know, when technical questions come up, uh, the, the normal reaction is call customer service at the uh, equipment manufacturers. And sometimes that can involve a long wait on the phone. Uh, our friends at W Hunting Supply have great tech support. And I'm told if you call up there... Uh, that Jason will get on the phone with you and, and get to the root of your problem right away. So uh, if I have a problem with my equipment this fall, that's what I'm going to do. Sounds like a great idea. And Jason's going to be with us at the upcoming major coon hound event or hound event of the United States Autumn Oaks. So he's going to be in the booth with us. So you can stop by our booth, pick up all your Houndsman XP logo wear 
and also pick Jason's brain about any questions you might have about your Garmin or Dogtra or whatever whatever platform you're using there to track your hounds. Absolutely. Uh, w Hunting Supply is a one-stop shop for everything the houndsman needs. Uh, they're online at www.dusupply.com. Welcome to the Houndsman XP Podcast. As always, I have my co-host, Mr. Steve Captain America Fielder, coming at us live from <laughs> Florida. How are you today, Steve? Uh, heavy on the mister there to you, son. That's right. <laughs> uh. <laughs> I'll try to, I'll try to uh, up the, the level of respect I have for you today. I've, I got a couple messages <laughs> how I need to respect my elders, so. I see. I see. Well, I'm definitely your elder, so. <laughs> hey, everything's great down here in the sauna. Um, as I've said before, you know, alligators are up, cottonmouths are up, armadillos are up, all all the stocks are up. Uh, everything's clicking right along. We got plenty of Yankees coming down Interstate 95 um, and swarming the beaches and... Uh, and I'm holed up in the air conditioning as far away from all that as I can possibly get. So everything's good. I'll tell you what, I can't figure out why in the world anybody needs to travel to Florida to hit 95 in humidity because we've got that right here in Bear Branch, Indiana. We've got uh, we've actually thinking about canceling some jobs later this week, some uh, outdoor construction jobs because of the heat indexes. So it's pretty rough out there. Well, I bet our guests today can top us on temperature. I bet they will be, too. And I'm excited to announce that we have Cleve and Becky Dwyer of, help me with the name, Becky or Cleve. Is it Bull Creek Lion Hunts or is it Bull Run? I can't remember. Bull Creek Outfitters. Bull Creek Outfitters, and they're from northern Nevada. And just give you a little backstory, I've been... For, for all of our listeners out there, and maybe some of them who have been hoping to hear from s- some women who choose to get outside and pursue these hounds, uh, I've been pursuing Becky to be on this podcast since we started, and we've, been, we've just been missing each other. So I'm extremely excited to have you on here, Becky. How are you today? Good, good. Excited to be on here. And Yeah, you finally got me nailed down and got together, and we'll get it done. Well, I'm looking forward to it. And uh, Steve, you want to introduce yourself and and have a little conversation with Becky and Cleve out there? We haven't heard from Cleve. She might have locked him in the closet. <laughs> well, <laughs> actually, <laughs> I don't think I need any any introduction. As old as I am, and as long as I've been around these hounds, I think most everybody know who I am. But uh, uh, what I am is a hounds person to the core, and that's all that matters. And uh, I'm just real excited to have uh, Cleve and Becky on the show today. Cleve, how are you doing, my friend? Good, good. How are you, Steve? Good. Everything's really good. Uh, uh, just uh, Chris is going to be kind of leading this interview with you guys today and i have a lot of questions i'm sure that i'll want to ask as we go along i enjoy your facebook page uh 
very much. And I had to chuckle this morning as I looked at it, a discussion on how to pronounce the state where you live. Would you give us a phonetic lesson there, Becky or Cleve or whatever? So uh, uh, those of us who live out here east of the big muddy river uh, know exactly how to pronounce your state. Well, a lot of people call it Nevada, but it's actually pronounced Nevada. So uh, that's that's how us Nevadans like people to pronounce it. So you're Nevadans then. Okay. Yes, sir. All right. All right. What's the origin of that word? Does it, do you know? Did you have did they teach Nevada history in school like they did for me in in West Virginia? Yeah, yeah, they they taught that, but but the meaning of uh, the word Nevada is a Spanish word. It means snowclad or uh, covered in snow. Okay, it means the the mountain peaks. Then I imagine. Yeah, yeah, for the most part, um, northern Nevada gets a fair amount of snow. So yeah, but, uh, but that's that's what it means is covered in snow or snowclad. Well, I would be a little bit concerned about clarifying that on facebook how to pronounce that name because up till now you guys have been able to determine who's from there and who's trespassing in nevada (laughs) (laughs) yeah usually no one gets gets too upset unless the california license plate i didn't just say that I hear you. Yeah, that's uh, that has to be a burden to bear to live that close, right? <laughs> well, I can tell. Yeah, oh, there, go ahead, Becky. There's some great everywhere. There's some great folks everywhere for sure. We sure. just like we just like teasing our neighbors to the west. I hear that. Mm-hmm. I hear that. Well, I can tell you that one of the reasons why I was excited about having Becky on here, if 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 any of our uh, listeners follow her on social media. From from my from my standpoint, I enjoy how both she and Cleve conduct their business on Facebook. Uh, the things they put out there, they have got class, and from what I see, a lot of integrity on the way they conduct themselves. And those are the types of people that we want to have on our show. Even though uh, you may have never seen their their names at at the on the on the covers of magazines or anything like that just getting to know them through social media has been a pleasure and the way they share things and but there's a there's a long story behind the Dwyer team here the super lion hunting team out there and I'm going to dive into that a little bit today well a lot today I would say but uh tell us starting off uh Becky where you are located in Nevada so we're here uh, in northeastern Nevada in or near a town called Wells. So we're about three hours from Winnemucca, two and a half hours from Salt Lake, and about 50 miles from the Idaho border, uh, the way a crow flies. But we hunt the whole state. We hunt everywhere from just north of Vegas in the Mojave Desert to clear up to the Idaho border where it's quakies and pines and rolling grass hills. And we're, uh, we're kind of all over the place. If there's lines there, that's where you'll find us. Well, good, good deal. How long have you? How long is have you and? Uh, well, let's just get to the the nuts and bolts of it. So, one of the things we were wanting to do is one we wanted to have an accomplished 
female woman on here, uh, and just to um, not be exclusive on this thing, even though it's called Houndsman XP, that is more like a term like human or, uh, you know, something like that. It's not meant to be sexist. It's just the title that that uh, we feel is fitting to everyone. But the other thing is we like to celebrate family. And a husband and wife hunting team is just phenomenal. And you guys are running Bull Creek Outfitters up there and doing lion hunts. And we kind of want to get some backstory on how you and Cleve met, how long you've been married, you know, things like that. So who wants to tackle that one? I'll, I'll kind of take the lead on that. We decided because I'm kind of the one that got us together in a way, and it'll kind of have to go go a little backstory towards when I was a kid, if that's all right, and come around that way. It's pretty short. Yeah, go ahead. Um, so I don't tell many people this. Ha ha. I grew up back east. You have now. And then, uh, <laughs> yeah. I many people. I <laughs> yeah. I left home when I was about 17 and just been chasing dogs since. But, you know, I grew up. My dad had uh, pretty high caliber field trial retrievers and grew up bird hunting and, and everything else. And I can remember, I'm going to date myself here. Back when Purina used to put all their champions on the back of the, all the sporting dog magazines, and we'd be sitting on the couch, and I would see the beagles and the hounds, and I always wanted hounds. And I'd be like, Dad, look at that black and tanner. Look at that walker. Look at that beagle. And he'd say, well, someday when you're older and you have your own house, I'll buy you all the hounds you want. He hasn't kept up on that promise, and I feel kind of gypped about it. <laughs> but <laughs> so I ended up uh, – doing some work with police dogs and military dogs. And then I ended up going down to Texas and working for a really well-known bird dog trainer there. Um, and I'd always, I had a hound myself. I coon hunted and chased a lot of deer with, (laughs) (laughs) but I always wanted to, to run big game with hounds. And I'm not really the type of person that ever waits for something to happen. I kind of make it happen. And so I got back from gallivanting around a little bit and said, you know, I'm just going to do it. And I Googled and emailed the top 30 outfitters that came up on Google in the U.S. and Canada and said, hey, you know, here's what I can do. I can train. I can clean kennels. I can hunt. You know, I can kind of do quite a bit. Is anyone looking for, for a sub guide? And I had this, this guy from Nevada call me back four times that night and said, you know, I'm not looking for a guide right now. He had a, a younger kid working for him, and we just got to talking and kept in touch and you know talk once a week or so and got to talking a little more and I moved back down to Texas and kind of decided you know we should probably get together someday and and go hunt and hang out a little bit so he was in Colorado at the time Uh, we sometimes split our time between Nevada and western Colorado so a year later I flew out to Colorado and we got together and here we are five or six years later now and I always tease them and tell them, you know, I just wanted a dog chase or a job chasing lions and dogs. I didn't want to do laundry and taxes and dishes <laughs> and cook and all that stuff too. Uh, well, Steve, I well, know you probably got a. You probably came up with a hundred questions out of that story, so you uh, go with it. Well, I tell you what, uh, Becky, when you speak about out east, where were you uh, before you went to Texas? Where did you grow up? I actually grew up in Connecticut. Wow. A Connecticut Yankee. 
Uh-huh. That's cool. That's cool. Absolutely. And what part of Texas? I, I've spent a lot of good times in Texas over the years in my work and and in, in the Air Force and so forth. Where were you in Texas? Yeah, I was down in a little town named Hondo, uh, about an hour southwest of San Antonio. Been there. Down the hill country. I have, mm. I have been to Hondo and ate at a little taco stand down there. I, we were there on our honeymoon. We were in San Antonio, and I picked a border town, and we drove drove out to Hondo, and that's that's interesting. Small world. I've been to it's pretty country. It's just too darn hot for me. If it gets above 70 degrees, I start complaining. <laughs> <laughs> well, I've been to Hondo, New Mexico. Does that qualify? <laughs> That's pretty close. What... You can confuse the two. Have you been to Hondo, New Mexico? That I have not. Okay. That's between Rio Doso and uh, Roswell. Um, and... Uh, I went out there on a on a bear hunt one time uh, in the Lincoln National Forest there, Capitan Peak, and uh, yeah, so that's that's interesting. Okay, well, um, yeah, uh, I always like to follow the the trail, you know, the geography. I can occupy myself with a road atlas for hours. I, mm-hmm. I've just always been in, interested in that sort of thing. But Chris, you're doing a great job, and uh, and uh, I'd like to hear Cleve's side of this story. Yeah, I would too. About about how they met. Yeah, what would uh, what do you like to know? <laughs> well, uh, it, did Becky uh, it include it all? Didn't what What did you think about this uh, this uh, young lady contacting you and uh, interested in the dogs and hunting? What was your reaction? Yeah, well, I'd uh, I got that email, and she'd sent some pictures over, and you know, some of her the mm-hmm. things she'd done with dogs, and and uh, first thing I thought, well, that's that's good looking girl. I, <laughs> I might keep talking to her. <laughs> so, uh, and and we did. We you know we we kept in touch for quite a while, and then uh, and then like she said, she, we came out, and and uh, when she came on out to Colorado, we went we went and rode the mules. I just got some mules from a. Uh, from an auction, they're, well, they're auction mules, you know, they're, they're kind of, kind of squirrely. <clears throat> and, uh, we went to, went to go make a ride and I'd only been on each one of them just one or two times since I bought them at this auction. And, and, uh, she went to get on the one that I thought was the better of the two mules at the time. And he kind of started jumping around and <clears throat> being kind of a, kind of a little brat. And <clears throat> she kind of went to working on him a little bit. And I thought, well, one more reason to keep her around. So, uh, <laughs> she, uh, she rode that one and, and I rode the other one. And, and, uh, that's, that's a, that's a pretty good, pretty good icebreaker, I guess you could say. And, uh, then she, uh, she ended up moving out there permanently, you know, and, and, uh, and then came on out to Nevada and, and the rest is history. But yeah, she, uh, she, she definitely loves the dogs. I think she loves them more than me. <laughs> well, what about the backstory of Cleve? Uh, tell us a little bit about you, where you were born, and how you came up to being involved with hounds and so forth. Yeah, yeah, you bet. Um, I was born in Colorado and raised for the most part in Colorado, and then uh, we we grew up. My family grew up in Nevada <clears throat> quite a bit too, but uh, my dad was a government trapper, 
so uh, we were exposed to a lot of houndsmen. He wasn't a houndsman, he was just a coyote man. And uh, he always had a lot of a lot of houndsmen friends. So from, uh, from the beginning, we had a, the opportunity to be around legendary lion and bear hunters, you know. And uh, I guess the way I we got started in uh, lion hunting is uh, we were at a barbecue, and, and uh, the guy's house we were at, his name is Chuck Griffin, and, and he's passed on since, but uh, he was a legendary bear and lion and, and jaguar hunter. And uh, we were at his house, and he had a little hound dog running around there at the barbecue. And and uh, he says, hey, Cleve, you want that dog? And I, of course, said, yeah. <laughs> and uh, my mom says, I, I don't know. I don't know if you need another dog. And my dad says, yeah, you can have that dog. So uh, I took that dog home and and uh, started working on it. And, and, and you know, I, I was kind of lost at, on how to train one at first and got that one started and got another one and and before I was out of high school you know I was starting dogs for other guys so um you know take a couple dogs a year and and hunt them for for the winter so um that's kind of how that came about but from the get-go I kind of had uh had an advantage over a lot of houndsmen a lot of houndsmen if you notice when they first start out they they don't start out with the best the best stuff they could possibly get you know and uh, I was fortunate to have started out with really, really good stock from the beginning. So uh, I was uh, I was lucky in that point. Well, well, where did that stock come from? What, uh, for point of reference, what was the background on the dogs that you started with? Um, like th- those dogs, there were out of Arizona, uh, dry ground line stuff from down there in, in central Arizona. They would uh, they'd probably go back to Steve Smith and and Larry Hendricks and probably real distantly maybe some somehow related to maybe Chris Todd stuff way distant you know but um, they're they're dry ground bred line dogs and uh, that Chuck Griffin had had got some dogs from those guys one or two dogs from this guy and one or two dogs from this guy and and he crossed them up and so he'd made his own strain but they uh, they all go back to that old dry ground bred line dog down in Arizona. Yeah. So they're mainly a tick, a red tick, blue tick, walker. I mean, what, what, what would somebody see if they, if they looked at one of your dogs, Cleve? Oh yeah. Yeah. You're exactly right, Chris. You know, a little bit of red (laughs) tick, blue tick. A lot of them are solid red. Um, everything but plot, you know, I, I, plots typically don't make real good dry ground line dogs uh they're good for other stuff but not dry ground line dogs so mm-hmm. um oh so, yeah a little bit of everything in, in one litter you might have four or five different color phases you know so um they just crossbred dogs and they're not real big dogs most of them are 35 to 45 pounds um we try to keep them smaller um, you know, 35 pounds is, is ideal. Well, okay, my father uh, would agree with you on that, Cleve, but what's your idea of keeping them smaller? Why? why? <clears throat> well, they typically, you can typically hunt a dog older in life if he's, in my, in my experience, if he's, you know, 35, maybe 40 pounds versus a 65 or 70-pound dog, and they're so much smaller and compact and they on average don't wear out as as much as as a big dog would you know so uh you know not as heavy and 
and a 35 pound dog he can get around just as many places as a 60 pound dog sure and uh they're they're compact and it seems like you just you know you can hunt them to where they're 11 12 13 years old versus an older or i mean a larger dog hell he's uh he's wore out by the time he's 11 or 10 most time you know mm. and uh right you gotta slow up but another point is uh like we have some do- we have some dogs that've got a little pinch of beagle in them and um like I have a dog that's 28 pounds and she's literally half the size of a couple of our do- other dogs that are crowding that 60 mark, but she only drinks a third as much water. Hmm. And, uh, so a lot of people hmm. in other parts of the country, they're thinking, well, well, water, that's no big deal. But when you have to pack it or you don't have a whole lot of water in, in an area like here in Nevada, um, if you're dry ground lion hunting, you got to you got to pack that with you unless you, you know, where, you know, every spring around along the way is, you know, to water them. And, uh, that water becomes pretty precious. So a smaller dog doesn't drink near as much water either. It's interesting. That's a, yep. It sure is. I want a, a quick question. What you mentioned the plot, there was a lion hunter years ago in Utah named Willis Butoff. Did you ever hear of him? Yep. Yeah. Um, one of the, one of the old legendary lion hunters, that we were friends with was good friends with him and and uh mm-hmm. he had some he had some really good dogs and yeah yeah especially bear dogs he had some really good bear dogs over he was from mm-hmm. helper utah okay well willis hunted plots and he got his dogs i think primarily from dale brandenberger out in illinois who bred the bigger maybe colder nose type plot dog uh but I'd never had any experience with Willis's dogs. I knew a, a fellow named Charlie Hill in Texas that went out and hunted with, with Willis and his son. A lot of great stories there. But I just, when you mentioned plots and lion hunting, I thought of him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Um, in fact, uh, Chuck Griffin was good friends with Willis Butoff. They, they'd hunted together quite a lot. I see. And, and uh, they're, they're good buddies and 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 Chuck had got some dogs from from Willis, and then back that was back in the day. But eventually he ended up getting out of them because they they weren't as good cold trailing. But he used those on right. Jaguar and in Belize and British Honduras and down there in Costa Rica. But uh, he had some Willis Butoff's uh, plot dogs there for quite a while. I imagine more for the grit and so forth uh, as opposed to cold trailing. Yeah, Maybe. exactly. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. They're grittier and and uh, yeah, they're they're tough too. He said you could hunt them hard. You know, he said they're they had a lot of heart. Just they just didn't cold tail quite as well. But like he made a good point. There in the jungles of South America, he said you don't need a cold nosed dog because there's so much vegetation and there's humidity, to where the dog don't have to really grub out a jaguar track as much. You know, he said mm-hmm. there's a lot of grass and them dogs could pretty much drift it pretty pretty fast. Mm. So. Is that something? Is that something you and Becky have done uh, in terms of hunting jaguar? No, 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 I never have. Mm-hmm. Um, I would like to, but uh, you know, with all the regulations these days, the only way a guy could ever go do that is on a biological study. You know, um, but um, that would that would that would be neat if I if I was presented the opportunity, I'd take it. I'm trying to. Uh, there's a group on on social media and i can't pronounce it because my spanish is terrible do you are you familiar with that what i'm talking about the guys that are posting a lot of videos from jaguar studies 
Sangre de Azul Kennels, I believe. Yeah, Sangre de Azul Kennels. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, easy for you to say. So, <laughs> uh, Sangre de Azul. That's the the <laughs> looking at Kentucky every day. I've kind of inherited some of that dialect. So, uh, even though I work with a lot of Hispanics all the time, they always talk to me about being a, a hillbilly, hillbilly redneck, Spanish speaking guy. So. Um, Anyway, I've been trying to figure out a way to get them on the podcast to do some interviews with them, but there's this little thing that's keeping us from it, and that's called the language barrier. So uh, we we can communicate back and forth in Google Translate, but but anyway, I digress back to to our our guests at hand here. Uh, I just brought that up because if I do get that lined up, Cleve, I might drop you a line and. And you might be able to go with me down there to do a live podcast and do some jaguar chasing with them. Yeah, yeah, that'd be uh, that'd be fun. Yeah, Becky, I want to kind of yeah. I want to kind of get back down to uh, your background as a professional trainer. You mentioned police dogs. You mentioned uh, military dogs, and and then I want to start out there and then talk about the progression into the hounds. Sure. So give us a little bit of background on your, your professional training experience. Well, you know, like I said, I grew up uh, in the retriever game. And, I mean, I was out throwing birds for dogs probably since I was about five years old. My dad, had, he was telling me a story the other day about showing up to a 4th of July field trial and getting teased because the dog's toenails are painted red, white, and blue. So <laughs> I kind of got put I got put into it pretty young, and I went on from there, and um, actually the guy that got me into coon hunting, I uh, my first dog was a papered walker from the pound, and he'd been there for six months, and they didn't know what they were going to do with him, and that dog was kind of meant for me, and I actually ended up finding one of his past owners. Uh, the dog originally came out of Maine, and that guy ended up being a, a really good friend of mine, lived around the corner, and we spent a lot of time in those swamps and um so I ended up going in and he was a dog trainer and helping him and kind of apprenticing to an extent under him and then I went down to Louisiana and went through a a canine training course and and the reason I really wanted to get into that was uh Angola prison actually has one of the top bloodhound man tracking breeding programs and training programs in the world and they do a lot of work closely with them and that was kind of my interest mainly was getting into the bloodhounds and and doing some man tracking stuff um but it covered everything from you know bite work and tracking to explosives and and drug detection kind of ran the whole gamut there um so i was there for a few months and got out went back to my folks house for the holidays just did some in-home personal obedience type training there uh helped my dad start some pups again and then i got a chance to go work for Utabar kennels there in hondo with uh john rabidou and he's a hall of fame guy i've heard of him german short yeah i know john yeah i know john yeah he was with the akc when i was there yes yeah, so I went to Texas and Nebraska with him. We'd summer in the sand hills of Nebraska and take, you know, anywhere from 40 to 70 dogs up there in the sand hills to run on wild birds. And that was a pretty good learning experience. You know, I got my hands on a lot, a lot of dogs. 
and a different type of training. You know, for bird hunting, I prefer the flushers and retrievers personally. I just like working a little closer with the dog uh, when I'm bird hunting, but it was a great experience. John and Susan were great. Um, he's actually got a wonderful gal. I know I'm working for him now that I was kind of able to hook up, hook those two up together and, and they're getting along great. And so it was, it was definitely something I wouldn't trade. You know, I worked for him for about a year and definitely had some good times there and came, went to Colorado and, did a little bit of personal training for people on the side there, you know, same pet type stuff, obedience issues, behavioral problems, stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was before Cleve and I were, were living together full time. I'd spend the winters in Colorado working there and, and taking care of the place there. And he'd be out here and we'd kind of go back and forth. Um, you know, I'd help him with young dogs and raising litters and, and stuff like that. I kind of have a, we don't really argue about anything besides puppies and horses. Actually, he, uh, he proposed <laughs> to me under a bear tree in New Mexico and I thought he was kidding. It. So I wasn't real nice about it, I guess, but then I asked him or Arizona, not New Mexico. Sorry. And, uh, I had asked him, I said, so you mean you want to bicker about hounds and horses forever? <laughs> <laughs> So so let me let me uh get down to something here. The reason I asked about your professional canine training is what kind of transferable skills did you bring from that over to hound hunting? Uh you know there's a lot of emphasis you talked about bloodhounds, man tracking, things like that. I just recently put a post on social media from a couple couple books. I was a I was a canine handler myself. I've told that story before. Most of our job was man tracking. Uh, mm-hmm. And we trained with the uh, RCMP, the Royal Canadian Mountain Police. They've got a, a very established uh, tracking core up there with their dogs. They run dual-purpose dogs, and we, we mainly just ran tracking dogs here. But uh, mm-hmm. I'm curious about your experience with working with scent hounds and, and what you learned there and how it's helped you as a lion hunter now? You know, there's, there's definitely some overlap. I mean, there's, as you know, there's a huge difference between human scent and the way that scent behaves in a way with the conditions Mm -hmm. um, versus a heck oilier scent like lion or, or something along those lines. Um, But I think just getting my hands on that number of dogs and being able to, to see the patterns emerge with everything has kind of helped me um, help me be able to see things I wouldn't normally be able to see handling a smaller number of dogs, if that makes sense. Sure. You know, and like I said, I was down there in, in Louisiana, you know, southwest Louisiana, uh, down by Lafayette, and that's, there's quite a bit of difference there to the high deserts of Nevada. You know, it's 90% humidity, and you've got more grass and brush and trees than a person could shake a stick at so the scent behaves so much different and it's really kind of interesting to see how the the environment affects the scent behavior yeah i know that when we would we would train track and we trained in all kinds of adverse conditions you know across parking lots across grass across uh, you know we would go out to um gravel pits 
and run tracks through gravel pits and it's amazing how you can when you're operating with a dog on the end of a leash and you watch you watch different dogs in a tracking harness or whatever you're tracking under there but you know to be able to see that dog actually drift that scent the way the scent would bank up you know on some of that dry ground it would bank or it would it would get between rocks and and you can just see the change we always call the tracking profile how that would change when they really started trying to dig that scent out and you do train changes and different things like that and as soon as you hit a uh, you know a grassy area the dog just seemed to fly down it and then they come to a, a a dry area and and really have to grub that out so i was just ex- i was interested in your experience on that absolutely like you were saying you know your your environmental changes and i think that's where cleve and i talk about this quite a bit and you know people always say well what's the most important thing on a dog being able to trail they have to have the physical ability of course you know if they can't smell something no matter how bad they want to it's just not going to work but even if they have that physical ability if they don't have the drive to push through it when it's tough Mm-hmm. it's not going to work you know they almost in a way have to kind of be too dumb to quit when things get tough and that <laughs> that can carry on a lot of ways it tests the uh, patience of the handler that's for sure and and same way with our houndsmen the reason i posted that uh you know the, the thing on social media was scent and the theory of scent and things like that was it seems to me that we learn so many things about garments and our technical equipment and and the game we're pursuing but a lot of times our hunters don't understand the most important thing and that's how the dog is interpreting that scent picture from the ground they're hunting in or being able to read that dog and they have no a limited understanding of you know what is happening when those dogs are actually trying to trail and and pick this scent up and i learned something a long time ago and I, I've told this story before, but uh, we were driving down the road. The coon crosses the road. I've got a pup in the truck. The coon crosses the road right in front of us. And, of course, the older guy I was with, I was like, slam on the brakes. I want to turn my pup out on this coon that just crossed the road. And he said, he looked at me and he said, we're going to go down the road. We're going to turn around. We're going to come back. And then we'll turn your pup loose. He won't be able to run it right now. He'll go crazy. He won't be able to do that. And I never understood that, but it worked. And even after I tried it a thousand times, I thought maybe one more time could make it work. But after this older gentleman told me that, we came back, put the pup down. He took the track the right way. He ran it because the scent had settled to where he can find it. So I'd never understood that until years later when I went through the formal police training of what actually was going on with scent. I still hear houndsmen talk about you know, getting sent out of the actual track and, and different things like that. What's your opinion on that? Exactly. Absolutely. You know, something that we, I think, forget a lot of times. Um, and I think people out West in a more arid climate don't think about scent saturation. Sometimes it's not even so much that they can't smell a scent, but they can't, there's so much scent there that it's overwhelming. They can't differentiate where it's going to and i think something a lot of people don't realize is dogs have what's called scent differentiation Mm -hmm. which a lot of times you know we call it scent discrimination but i get what you same same thing yeah yep so as you know you know with 
the dual purpose dogs, your detection dogs, let's say someone's trying to smuggle something into the country, an illegal drug or explosive something. Oh, well, you know, mask it with the smell of coffee. Well, it doesn't work because dogs can smell both. You know, one of the best uh, explanations I've heard for it is you walk in a house and you smell cheeseburgers. You know, oh, that's great. Well, dog walks in, he smells the beef, he smells the cheese, he smells the mustard, the tomato, the lettuce. They can pick apart everything in that scent profile. Right. And that makes a, a bit of a difference, too. I think a lot of people don't think about that. They think, oh, well, scent is scent is scent, and it's not, and it all behaves differently. And it can be kind of confusing to a dog in a lot of ways. I agree. Steve, you have a point? Well, I think of several things as as we're talking here. Uh, uh, you know, back east, the hunters don't really think about this subject of, of scent too much. And if they do, they think of it on a very basic level. Now, in my interviews with people for articles in Bear Hunting Magazine, uh, I do uh, these uh, legendary bear dog series articles. And it's common to hear a hunter out east say, this dog was a real cold trailer. And I've seen him plow his head under the snow like a, plow, like a snow plow and, and follow that track. And that was amazing that that track was so covered with snow. Well, to you, I, I hope you're going to agree with me, out there, tracking in the snow is one of the easiest ways, is it not? It is, you know, something you can kind of run into. I've had a time where I've got a dog who's pretty darn cold. I mean, we always kind of joke around that if a saber tooth, we found an old saber tooth trail, he'd take it. And uh, there's been there's been days that have been real low humidity and just dirty cold. And I've turned him out on what I know is a fresh track, you know, from the night before. And he acts like nothing's there. You know, he can take it by sight a little bit, but acts like nothing's there. And something a lot of people don't think about is scent freezing as well. Right. And that's oh, yeah. Something that we, that's something we run into. I mean, a lot of people don't think in Nevada you get nights that are with the wind, you know, negative 35, negative 25, and, and it happens. Uh, Cleve's really good on, on that scent and all that, too, so I'll, I'll kind of defer to him a little bit on this. Cleve, what's your experience? Yeah, with, with the with those with the way scent holds, it's it, it differs in in each region, you know, and and out here in Nevada, oftentimes when it uh, when uh, we get a real dry weather and then you get a little bit of moisture, it'll it'll freeze that scent and into the whether it's dry ground and you got a frost on it or or if it's just dry snow, you know, sometimes it just locks it in there, and okay. oftentimes you have to. Uh, have to wait for the sun to come up if it's been really cold that then night. what happens when you when you see that frost melt off on that track then then what happens most of the time most of the time you can start trailing it again you know yeah but exactly it's like they got a shot of adrenaline i, I yeah. have a i have a, a little story to tell and i'll try to be brief bear hunting back in west virginia in the days before i went to the kennel clubs took two young plot females uh, it was a bad day it was toward the end of season bear weren't uh, weren't moving it was in december snow on the ground so i decided to take a couple of dogs and take a walk as we say back there walking around under some cliff roads and so forth to try to 
perhaps, you know, find a bear. Maybe the dogs could win the bear. And I found a track that was frozen in the snow and it was going uphill. And I started walking that track. Now, neither of these, uh, females could smell that track at that point. And they were probably about two years old at that time, but both had shown to have good noses on coon. And, uh, I continued to walk that track and the bear went up through a clear cut and over some big logs and he was walking the, the logs and the prints right there in the snow. We finally got up high enough and the sun was coming over the mountain to the back of me and that track began to thaw out. And as far as the actual distance traveled, I know there wasn't a lot of difference in the age of that track from the time I started it until this point. But when that sun hit that track and it began to thaw, those dogs started opening on that track and pulling on the leashes and wanted to take it. I followed it all the way to the top of the mountain and left a marker there on a bush, and I had to get back home to go to work. And I radio, I left, and the guys went back the next day and put the dogs on that track and coal trailed and jumped and, and harvested that bear. But the point is that it's exactly what you're saying. That scent was frozen. Those dogs couldn't smell it. But once it started thawing out, they could. Yep. <clears throat> yeah, I, I totally agree. You know, it, it it all comes down to well, sometimes just that frost. If, for example, uh, this last fall, my brother and a friend of ours were, were hunting lions, and it was in september october and one of the first frosts of the year and and uh, they were riding the mules up a canyon and and just had a bunch of you know about 12 10 or 12 dogs free cast and and there was a frost and uh, the dogs didn't strike the lion track and they rode to the top of this canyon and made a circle and came back down and when they crossed right there where they they'd ridden this that morning them dogs struck the track and and they trailed it and trailed it and finally he my brother found where the lion track went up the hillside and sure enough they were on a female lion and she had walked during the night but that frost had locked the scent in to where it created a scent barrier between you know that that track and the dog's nose obviously and uh after that frost had lifted they trailed that lion for six hours you know and uh, never caught up to her and jumped her but uh they, they trailed a long ways and right there you know goes to show you that that frost has a has a has a big uh, big impact on scent. Cleve, I've got a question for you. Have you ever seen a hound? You've got a track going across some semi dry ground, arid ground, maybe rocky soil, but there's clumps of grass in there. Have you seen senior hounds track? It looks like they have a loss between clumps of grass, but it seems like they're picking that scent up where that scent can collect in those clumps of grass. Have you ever noticed that? Yeah, oftentimes it seems like the the more more green grass seems to hold the scent better. Mm-hmm. In uh, my experience, the drier stuff, like out here in Nevada, we have a lot of cheatgrass, and that that cheatgrass doesn't seem to hold it well. But more uh, it holds more it, green lush grass. But it holds it better. Hold it holds it better than dirt, though, right? Would you agree with that? Um, I I. Not always. I don't know. I'd have to say it, it all depends, you know, uh-huh. at times. Often they you go through them grass flats, and they can't trail very very well. Yeah. 
and they, but they can get the scent out of the dirt. Wow. And then once you hit 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 rock like big rock, you know, not gravel type rock, but rock like the size of your fist or bigger, it seems like they can they get more scent off that. That's for lion scent. Right. Right. Anyhow. But um but I, I don't really like like hitting them grass flats that's got a lot of dry grass on there. Those those can be pretty tough. I've seen tracks for, tracks go across and I'm going back to my canine. We used to run a lot of short grass tracks, especially on sunny days. Mm-hmm. You know, dogs can really struggle in that short grass because it just seems like the scent evaporates off of it on the sunshine. Well, yep. scent is yeah. scent is something that is. I mean, it's just a huge. It's an unknown. We don't. We our brains can't register it because you know dogs are seventy five percent dependent, maybe higher on their on their olfactory senses, and we're visually stimulated. So our noses don't work as well, and it's it's so foreign to us as humans to be able to understand what that dog is actually taking in and seeing. And it's it to me this kind of geeky techno stuff on scent. It, I can talk, I can go on and on with it. <laughs> Did I lose everybody? Yeah, I'll, I'll, yeah, yeah. There's there's always so much to learn and right when a guy thinks oh, i think i got it figured out he 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 says something come along that proves him wrong in in one of his beliefs you know right right at least that's a that's a level of humility right there cleve and I, i'm glad to hear you say that because you know anytime we pull up somewhere and think we've got stuff figured out then we're going to get a dose of reality so do we have any final thoughts on on nose and scent and olfactory senses and all that things? If not, we'll move along. No, that's uh, that's that's about all I can bring to it. I can't imagine trying to be a, a, a dry ground lion expert or an outfitter and not being able to understand understand scent and olfactory and you know how dogs' nose works. So, I want to get back to Becky. Um, yeah, I would love to ask. It's going to be kind of a personal question, but uh, we're going to ask it anyway. I want to know what kind of challenges you face as a woman and being a hound hunter. You know, I had a feeling this question might come up. <laughs> I'm glad, I, I'm glad I didn't disappoint you. <laughs> well, it wouldn't have hurt my feelings if we gone over that. Um but, you know, it's something I've thought about a lot. And I don't – it's kind of a tough question to answer, honestly. And I think there's probably and, – and not on your end, but I think there's probably a expected type answer. Um, but I don't – I've never really looked at myself and said, oh, I'm a, I'm a gal that runs dogs. I always just wanted to be, you know, like you said, not, not a houndsman in the gender way, but just as a whole – I've always wanted to just have someone say, that's a good dog man right there. And if I can do that, then I'm doing all right. But, you know, I think no matter what you do, who you are, how you're plumbed, there's going to be people out there (laughs) that are going to take issue with what you do. And I, I think that's more of a reflection on them and insecurities going on internally with them than it is the person that they might take an issue with. Um, you know, I think one of the things that's probably been tougher and I, you know, I've met some people that 
I would say have probably been a little chauvinistic. Um, but again, you, you know, that's on them, not me. That That's not a reflection of me. That's on them. Um, I think one of the things that me, you know, I'm going to be 27 this year. Cleve's, Cleve's a bit older than I am. And I think that's probably been a little tougher is saying, yeah, you know, even at this age, I have handled hundreds of dogs. And, you know, some people, oh, hundreds of dogs. Okay, that's not a big deal. Um, so I think sometimes it can be a little hard to be taken seriously then. And I think one of the issues of people not realizing, you know, I was around dogs long before Cleve. And I'm, I'm not taking anything away from him, but I think a lot of times people see stuff on Facebook and say, oh, well, you know, that gal's just tagging along because her husband has dogs or whatever, and she wants to be part of it type of deal, mm-hmm. or, or she wants the, the Facebook fame, um, something along those lines. And oftentimes that's not the case, but, you know, most of the women I know aren't looking to be treated special or, oh, gosh, look at her. She runs hounds or whatever. It's You just want to be treated equally um, and not feel like something's automatically against you in a way and and you know I've been really blessed I I have some great buddies that have never treated me any different and and have been great and I've had some that when some situations have come up they've jumped back at people before I've ever had a chance and said you know you don't even realize what you're saying you know you're making assumptions without even getting to getting to know the situation um that's you know, and, and Cleve's seen a lot. I, I'm kind of going to throw him under the bus on this because I really don't have a a great answer for that. But besides more gear, it's tough to find gear made for women that'll hold up <laughs> <laughs> uh, boots and pants and all that. And you know, I don't need it pink or purple or whatever. I just want something that works, and I don't have to pay three times as much for because it it's geared towards women. <laughs> but you know, Cleve's kind of seen some of the some of the frustrations and the struggles and. And he can kind of talk on that, too, and from a guy's standpoint on it as well, uh, if you guys are all right with that. Well, before we go there, uh, my my daughter, my my middle daughter, Cora, has always been my right-hand dog trainer. She is, ever since she was a little kid, <laughs> uh, Steve, I think your mic's on there, Um the uh ever since she was a little kid i mean i would tell her on a school night no you better not go tonight and i would go out to the truck i'd have the truck pulled around i'd go out there and she'd be sitting in the passenger seat you know she you just couldn't keep her away from it and uh when she bear hunted and different things like that she killed a nice bear in west virginia uh when we got to the tree where she was the only only girl female in the in the uh group and as she was looking at this bear, all these men are standing there saying, well, do you want to shoot it? Do you want to, can you shoot it? Now just hold the rifle up like this. And, and before they even got done, she's been around firearms her whole life. She knew she, I've watched her stand out here in, on our firing range here at the house and show up boys every day with a 22 rifle. And her mom's the same way. Her mm-hmm. mom's a heck of a shot. And, and just to see how they get treated sometimes, I was just curious for your, uh, from your perspective, what you had seen on that sort of thing. And I know that Steve has got a follow-up question for this or a comment that he wants to, he wants to throw in there before we move to Cleve's perspective. Steve, go ahead. Yeah. Well, yeah. Well, if I can jump in there, Becky, I think more, more than anything else, I've had the experience of, of knowing some very 
uh, tough, outstanding, savvy women hunters, and especially bear hunters. Nancy Hudson in Michigan comes to mind. Um, mm-hmm. uh, one of, uh, a daughter of one of uh, my dad's hunting buddies back in West Virginia comes to mind. And there's several. And I think it's more than being um, chauvinistic. I think guys are a little bit surprised because I think they're intimidated. Yeah. Well, typically back East, especially, and then the Southern culture and whatever, uh, you know, women are not out there hunting with the men typically. And I think they're just a little more in awe than anything else to say, wow, (laughs) you know, this lady can do anything I can do and better, you know, and it it, kind of just blows their mind. And maybe sometimes the ego gets in, mm-hmm. you know, and they and we all males have egos as big as Texas, as, as I'm sure you know, Becky. <laughs> and yeah, uh, yeah. and uh, so that kind of enters in. But I think more than being, uh, I, I think more than animosity, I think it's more uh, awe and surprise than anything else. But that's just my point of view. Yeah, I, I think it certainly can be, and you know, it it certainly brings a a different realm into it, um, especially if you're hunting around, you know, older guys. And I, I've had the the pleasure of being around some absolutely wonderful wonderful people in the sport, and you know, I think egos and arrogance, uh, sadly, seems to be a big part of the big game hound culture. Um, and it really does more harm than good. I think it's just human uh, culture. Yeah, yeah, and it's not directed at at gender. It's just it's among <laughs> ourselves. You know the old saying, "I've I've seen the enemy, and he is us." You know, <laughs> or he is me, and and that that tends to be has always been a huge problem in keeping the hound community divided when we really really need to be pulling together. Absolutely, and that's something I think you can see a lot of jealousy in, in women between other women hunters, too. Um, and I think that's something, you know, you need to be supporting each other no matter what. I mean, you don't have to be best friends, but you don't need to be running anybody down and, uh, you know, making snide comments or, or oh, well, look at that, you know, she this or she that, you know. Good for her. If mm-hmm. that's what works for you, go with it. If that what works for him, good for him, you know, just nothing good ever came out of out of non-support and in ego uh and that's just kind of my thoughts on it you know yeah well i i certainly didn't bring this topic up to to put you on the spot or make a spectacle out of this i just i feel like it's an elephant in the room that that needs to be discussed and the thing that i've noticed in my daughter is she has a perspective when it comes to training these hounds and these puppies that I will never have, you know, other than what I picked up on from her. It's, it's just amazing. I, I, I really can't even describe what it is. Uh, maybe it's a little softer touch. Maybe it's a little more patience. Maybe it's a little more understanding. Maybe it's a little more empathy towards the, the dog that I'm trying to train, but she has a knack for being able to get inside that dog's head and understand what that dog needs at that particular time in order for it to be successful. And I've learned to 
listen to her and value her opinion about about what she thinks needs to happen with the dog. Same way with my wife. I mean, she's just, she's like, we call her the dog napper. I can bring any pup here that I want. And before the end of the first day, that puppy has already made up, made friends with my wife. And it seems like I have to have to try to dog nap it back. <laughs> yeah. You know, I know I've noticed that a lot over the years. And I think a lot of times some of what it is in a lot of situations, um, and there's there's been other situations that pops up in throughout life, you know. I think women as a whole tend to be more detail oriented, and we kind of look at smaller things. I guess what they call a woman's intuition, um, but we tend to notice little things in the big picture that I think <laughs> make a big difference. I um, I'm not you know, laughing have... at you. I'm laughing at myself because I've heard this conversation <laughs> before. You know, I, my wife goes out after things with a with a surgeon's knife or a scalpel, and I go after things with a sledgehammer. So definitely more. De- I can't no, agree more. We might have had that conversation in this house a time or two, and sometimes I'm the one with the sledgehammer. <laughs> Good for you. Good for you, Cleve. Have you got a perspective on this? This will be interesting. Yeah, oftentimes I've noticed, um, you know, some uh, some guys that come hunting with us, you know, our clients will be taken back that, you know, my wife is hunting also, and sometimes she's with us in the in the same truck, and sometimes she uh, sometimes she has her own truck, you know, and she goes off different direction and that they're taken back by that more than you know than her just going along because automatically a lot of them think oh crap well she's just you know she's just here to kind of tag along but she's not right and she's out for tracks and and uh hunting or maybe a totally different mountain range and we just stay in contact via radio or cell phone and one of us finds a line track another one heads that way so well oftentimes i think they're taken back to that you know and i think I think Steve's right. Oftentimes they're in awe and they're surprised at it more, more so than, than, uh, judging, you know? Agreed. I agree with that. And, you know, I'll tell a story on myself. I was much younger and before I had my own daughters and we, I hunted with a friend of mine. I'm not going to mention where, cause it would give it away, but, uh, his wife came with us on the hunt and I was very, uncomfortable with that and mostly it was geared more towards because I felt like I needed to alter the way that I behaved or you know I couldn't jump out of the truck and take a leak right there uh you know but it was all selfish selfishly motivated on my part I've I look looking at it in retrospect it was more about me and my inconvenience than it was about whether or not and she was a capable hunter and um i i did not treat that situation fairly or you know justly on that aspect so i'm 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 taking a whole new perspective on my older age not as old as steve but older age <laughs> yeah i got gotcha. you yeah yep that that makes sense and i can see how you know a lot a lot of guys would probably feel that way uh, a few years back i had a hunter that called you know a client and he's calling about a lion hunt and one of the first questions he asked is do you have any female guides i says well my my 
my at the time she's my girlfriend you know, I said well my girlfriend she helps us out and and he re- seemed really concerned that I had that you know that that I had a, a woman helping and uh, got off the phone and I never heard back from him and obviously he there was something there that bothered him but I'm not gonna leave her at home just because he doesn't doesn't want her there you know and uh is who knows you know she might be the one that finds the track that would have made the world of difference you know right so uh yeah so yeah i I think sometimes there's maybe they're just uncomfortable you know situations where some guys think well i don't want to have a you know i don't want like like you said i don't want to have to walk another 50 yards to take a leak or (laughs) you know watch and, and all that you know but uh I don't know. It's 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 kind of a pretty wide spectrum uh, spectrum of of why some people don't like it, but or they might just feel uncomfortable. So. Yeah, it'd be nice to be able to sit back and say, well, you should act the same regardless of whether a woman's there or not, or or whatever. And and but but it. I was raised out of you treat women with the dignity, you know, and 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 try to honor honor women in that way and because men are men i'm not going to sit here and fantasize about how men men are the same whether women are around or not because it's just that's that's just a flat-out lie it's it's not true i mean all you got to do is is walk a walk through a walk a pretty girl through a, a crowd of teenage boys and look and see how they get stupid so (laughs) <laughs> you know they they, yeah. they don't they don't we don't act the same but but we, they certainly deserve our respect and 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 on the mountain don't judge somebody's abilities based on as becky says how they're plumbed because i know that's a fallacy you know that has nothing to do with with the uh the person's ability as a hunter there's several women out there that i'd much rather share a camp with and and run a track or share a hunt with than than some a lot of men i know so kudos to you guys i know that's a tough topic but i felt like it was the elephant in the room that we needed to talk about steve you got anything well no i think it's time to maybe talk a little bit about uh the the guide business that you guys have out there uh how you operate that uh what are the ins and outs of it? How does somebody that uh, is interested in coming to to Nevada to to catch a mountain lion uh, tell us about that? Well, it's it's Cleve's Cleve and his brother's business. I came into it, and I do a lot of the behind the scenes stuff, um, which is fine by me. I I just assume we have the spotlight, um, but you know, they run it pretty darn well. They've got a a high success rate and good good integrity like you guys said and i'll uh i'll hand it over to him yeah the way we um operate our guide service is uh most of our i guess if you're asking you know hunts and all that most of them are two guides per one hunter or sometimes one guide per one hunter we take a lot of doubles so we take a lot of guys that are um, you know, father and son or two buddies that come out and, and those are the ones that we like the best because as, uh, as you'd expect, you know, there's a lot of camaraderie there and, and, uh, you know, there's, it's a lot of fun when you take doubles like that. And as soon as one guy harvests his mountain lion, the free guide, the one that, you know, 
he he doesn't have an obligation to catch a lion now, he automatically starts helping the other guide, and uh, so it's a team effort. And um, so me and my brother and then Becky will will all be out hunting. So oftentimes we have three trucks running, and uh, it, that's kind of how we operate that. So whether it's you know side by sides or snow machines here in northern Nevada or mules down down in southern Nevada down in the desert, then uh, we all we all just team up and and it's it's a team effort. So 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 kind of walk us through a typical day at Bull Creek. A person books a hunt with uh, Bull Creek. What can they expect? What kind of setup have you got uh, as far as accommodations, camp, stuff like that? Um, in the wintertime, you know, they uh, – we well, first of all, we always tell everybody to arrive a day ahead of time. That way we can get settled in on paperwork, and, and if they still have to buy a license, then we can go get a, a license bought. And most days start about 3 a.m., and we should be leaving town or leaving camp at at uh at five or thirty or five if it's a if it's a dry ground hunt oftentimes we'll camp out and then we camp out in wall tents and we pick at our dogs out and uh have our mules staked out and uh we we leave by daylight you know we're leaving camp by daylight and the way we hunt on uh on dry ground with our mules is uh is we uh, we have some chassis we have uh, horse boxes that mount in the back of the truck. Mm-hmm. Now my brother slides in the back of his, so he can load two mules in his, and it's it's a one ton. And then mine mine's a chassis mount, and I can load three mules in mine and about ten dogs. And uh, so we don't have to drag a horse trailer around these these tight country roads. You know these big <clears throat> big uh, horse trailers don't get around switchbacks real well. Mm-hmm. So. Um, we, and then we just back up to a bank and load our mules and uh, collar up dogs. And oftentimes on that, we'll, uh, we'll make, you know, 10 or 15, 20 mile ride. But uh, oftentimes we'll hunt at night too, because here in Nevada, we can, we can hunt lions at night. So what we'll do is we'll take maybe four or five dogs and kick them out in front of the truck and, and road hunt them. Mm-hmm. And then uh, up a canyon or a spot that's, that's known for lions to cross. And once they strike, then, uh, you know, you got to make sure they're going the right direction. Oftentimes, you'll be trailing a line in the wrong direction, going backwards on him. But uh, if that's the case, you know, you got to turn them around. But we we do that quite a bit too. And if we don't have anything gathered up by daylight, then 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 we make a ride. But uh, we also drag a lot of roads in the dry ground too. We'll, we'll cut a cedar tree down that's maybe 10 feet tall, and hook it to the <laughs> hook it to the truck and drag roads three or four days before our clients arrive. And especially if we know there's a good line in there, and then uh, we go and check those roads, and, and you can you can see a line track cro- crossing that soft dirt really well, and you can sort things out really mm-hmm. pretty good that way also. Well, that's so. typical to the way the bear hunters do up in in Michigan and Wisconsin right. and so forth. They drag they drag roads like that too, Cleve. Hey, by the oh, way, right. what is your brother's name? We we're hearing about your brother. What's his name? His name is Monty Dwyer, and he, he lived in Pioch, Nevada, which is about, oh, 260 miles south of where we live. <clears throat> so he lives in the southern part and uh, in a town called Pioch, and it's world-renowned for record-class mule deer and uh, record-class elk. They're some of the biggest in the state coming out of that region. So um, it's just north of, of the Mojave Desert. Pioch is right there as, as soon as you drop out of the Great Basin. 
into the Mojave. So it's uh, it's pretty pretty well transitioned from high desert to low desert. Mm. Does he guide uh, deer and elk hunters as well? Um, he he occasionally guides one here and there, mm. but mainly we just we just hunt mountain lions. We specialize in lions. It's all so. Awesome. But, uh, how do they how do they reach you? Uh, you have a website. Uh, let's get that on here. Yeah, yeah, we have a website. It's bullcreeklionhunts.com. That's all one word, lowercase. And all and, your uh, contact information's there. Right? Yes, sir. Yep. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. I thought it was interesting uh, you describing then, the way wait. you the way you haul your uh, mules in the backs of your trucks. We there was one person that I had them with here that that we actually transported mules the same way. We had a dog box up mounted up next to the cab, little hay rack on top of the dog box, and then he had a rack built on the back of his truck. And same way, one ton truck, and you pull. You could you could drive everywhere. You didn't have to have a horse trailer, fine uh, trailing behind you, and just had rubber floor mats in the bed of the truck, and and uh, jump the mules in and out, and off we would go. Pretty cool. Yeah, it's uh, it, it's pretty convenient, you know. The only hard hard part is sometimes you you'll get a a mule that doesn't want to load in that thing at four in the morning, but uh, most of the time we get around <laughs> that. But you know, how mules are though. You, <laughs> you got to have a conversation with them, talk them. But, but but on the on our contact info, we also have a Facebook page, and uh, that's and that is Bull Creek Lion Hunts on on the Facebook page. So. Yep, I would recommend people go there, like it, follow it, and uh, get a different perspective on some lion hunting. Steve, are you uh, you got any concluding thoughts? Are we about wrapping this one up? Well, I tell you what, I wanted to to talk just a little bit about the mules themselves. Uh, uh, I look back, my the very first coon hunt I ever remember taking, uh, I was probably about three years old or four, and. Uh, my grandfather kept draft mules. Everybody in Middle Tennessee, where my dad grew up, had a team of mules. They used them for everything. They skid logs with them. They uh, hitched. My grandfather was legally blind, and he would hitch his team to the wagon on Saturday morning, bright and early, and drive the team eight miles into town and do his business on Saturday and then drive back home. Uh, so mules were a part of life in that part of the country. Uh, and, uh, you know, so I have a fondness for them, uh, simply because my grandfather had them, but I have coon hunted on mules in Michigan and in Texas and all, but tell us a little bit about the mules, why you use mules instead of horses. And then how do you breed your mules? And, uh, you know, just, just an overview on that. Well, the, the main reason we like mules, you know, is a uh, lot, lot of people, as everybody knows, they're more sure-footed on average than a horse. And uh, there's there's some really sure, sure-footed horses out there, but mules on average, you can hunt them harder, you can ride them harder, whereas uh, a horse, you got to give them more days off. A lot of this country, you know, we'll be going 15, 18, 20 miles 20 mile a day, and a mule, you can do that three or four days in a row and give him a day off and he only needs one day off and you're back to three or four days straight of that and uh, versus a horse you'd you'd ride him one day give him a rest ride him the next day so every other day 
and uh, you you know on a hard on a hard lion hunt and you're going in some pretty rugged country you, you end up feeling sorry for a horse but you, I never feel sorry for the mules because it's it's like they didn't even do anything they they feel like like they could do it the next day and they do and uh, so that's that's the main reason we use mules but um, along with with everything that's good about mules they can you know sometimes they can be kind of <laughs> kind of stubborn or or self-preservationist as you'll call it uh, and they they don't want to do something they it's like you got to talk them into it but uh that's what what we uh what we like about mules is you can you can ride them so much harder and they don't eat as much which doesn't exactly. seem like a whole lot but, but they don't eat as much and and uh they're just i don't know they're all around better but there's some good horses out there we we still have a couple horses but uh we don't use them quite as much as we used to so uh we we got them if we need them but we as for mules we don't raise our own we uh we tried that a couple times and and it's it's easier just to buy buy some some mules that are green or 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 broke and then uh and then go from there so is there a special combination of the of the jack and and the mare or, that you use or vice versa a particular breed of horse you like or or whatever when you when you do select a a mule um you know not 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 in particularly you know a lot of guys they like you know they like a mammoth jack on a or a yeah mammoth jack on a quarter horse mare but uh my my brother's got some that are that are out of some quarter horse mares and they're pretty pretty nice mules decent mules and uh they came out of a mammoth jack but i have a little white mule and she's she's in rape she came out of an arabian mare and i didn't know this until Oh, a couple years ago and uh i always wondered what she was out of what she's out of because she's double tough she's probably the toughest mule we have and uh she she's had an arabian mare and and uh, and a standard jack and uh, she don't she don't have the best disposition i don't i don't let clients ride her because she she kind of tries to pull some stuff but she she her and i get along well <laughs> but uh she, she's double tough and can ride her hard and uh She's, I think I think she's too hungry to get tired. So, um, yeah, <laughs> every Arabian horse um, that I was on was tough, but they could be hard to handle. That's for sure. And my experience with mules, I I can confirm or or validate what you said about them not eating as much. We used to say that a a mule can live off of what a horse will drop out of its mouth when you go to feed it. So they're amazing animals for sure. Oh, for sure. Yeah, I totally agree. They, How they, old? That on dirt, you know. Yeah. How old will you typically work a mule? I mean, how old would the mule be uh, before you'd have to retire it? Oh, twenty. You can you can ride them. You can ride them hard up until they're twenty. You know that uh, that little white mule I have. She's thirteen, fourteen now, and I could see riding her hard until she's you know twenty years old. 20 maybe 25 versus a horse most time he's going to be he's going to be in his golden years when he's 17 or 18 you know yeah okay. he's, he's going to wear out by then but uh a mule yeah you can get a lot out of him and uh, another thing is so if you're just going hunting for a couple of days and like putting shoes on your mule most time you can get by three or four days without shoes on a mule you know versus a horse you better have some iron on him before you even leave leave the trail head you know so uh 
mules oftentimes you can get by without having to shoe them for three or four days of hunting so hmm. but uh man i like that because i hate having to put them i uh i hate having to put shoes on them just for you know a day or two if, and then i have to go do something else for a while and then uh come back but um and their mules are good good practice for marriage too you know gives you a lot of patience so <laughs> oh now it's still there becky <laughs> oh i'm still here i'll, I'll fully admit <laughs> oh yeah but uh yeah it's yeah you start start getting in, in a marriage marital disagreement and you think wait a minute i've been here before <laughs> from what i've seen yeah, of becky's so. writings on facebook i'd say she could probably say the same thing oh yeah 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 oh yeah hey i just had a weird thought here what about snakes and your dogs and your mules and all you have a lot of rattlesnakes out there um yeah we we get a fair amount we we get a fair amount um down in southern nevada where my brother lives uh, we have three or four different kinds and the worst one is the green mojave rattler and uh they're they're pretty bad news. They're not as big as a diamondback, but uh, yeah, they're really really bad. Aggressive, uh, huh? Yeah, really aggressive. And from what I understand, they have two kinds of venom. They have hemotoxin and neurotoxin, and and uh, and they're you get bit by one of them and you're you're in bad shape. But uh, you know, uh, we've had had some dogs bit over the years. There's only a couple. My brother had one bit last summer, and uh, he got him he got him to the vet and got him span of venom and and uh he, he he survived but uh uh luckily he didn't didn't get bit bad but um he he's all right but we don't get too many dogs bit but we lost one you know about 10 years ago and there's one dog we didn't have radio collar on and uh my brother was hunting in july or august and and trailed a really big tom up into some pretty rocky country and that's the one dog he didn't get back and and uh, we kind of had a suspicion she probably got bit because that's a rattlesnake-infested canyon, pretty pretty bad. So maybe a couple year, couple over the years have been bit is all. Yeah, yeah. Well, Steve, you uh, you get her wrapped up. Well, I tell you, Chris, I have a lot of questions for these guys, and I hope that we can do this again, uh, Cleve and Becky. It's been great to have you you guys with us today i have questions about the dogs about the litters you raise and how you go about breeding them and and a lot of things like that but i think we probably better save that for the for the next time around uh uh, it's been a great visit today i've enjoyed it very much and uh and uh hopefully our paths will cross sometime um and uh but i in the meantime i'll keep watching facebook and and visiting your website and i hope that some of the listeners out there that want to take a an authentic uh lion hunt in nevada will contact you and make that happen yeah yeah absolutely we'd love to have them and, and we'd love to have you guys come on out and and do some hound hunting with us it'd be it'd be fun for sure yeah chris we ready to wrap this up yeah i just want to ask, make sure that uh Cleve or Becky don't have any final thoughts or anything they want to share with our listeners before we wrap it up. Um, I guess that's all I got to say. Uh, I appreciate the opportunity to come on your podcast and, and, uh, thanks again. And, and it was fun and I'd never done one. And 
so now I kind of know what it's like. It's like like you guys said, it's it's like sitting around a campfire, you know. Well, we were right where you are about two months ago, Cleve. <laughs> we had ne- we had never done one either, <laughs> but we're having a lot of fun with it for sure. What about you, Becky? Any thoughts? No, I, I think we covered quite a bit, you know, besides some of the, the dog details. And, you know, we really appreciate you guys having us on the show, and we really enjoy listening to it. Uh, we know, didn't discuss anything about the uh, – Nevada uh, legislative picture, Chris. Did we uh, did we just look look past that, or are we going to visit that the next time around? Well, I'm definitely not on any kind of time constraint. As long as Becky and Cleve aren't, we can touch on that, or we can pick that up and maybe a joint with a joint podcast with some of the officials from the Nevada. Is it the Sporting Dog Alliance, Becky? Yes, the Nevada Sporting Dog Alliance, and we don't have any time constraints that's the joy of being self-employed um love it but yeah i'm uh, i'm one of the founding members of the nevada sporting dog alliance and you know we were originally going to set out to be a a hound focused group um but we realized you know the the anti's goal is to take hunting one step at a time you know, go from once they get the hounds outlawed, it'll be the bird dogs. We're already seeing that in New York uh, and some other states. I believe Oregon also is wanting to ban field trials right. for bird dogs. Um, you know, so it's a it's a gradual, gradual thing they're wanting to take. Um, you know, and so we do a lot of public outreach and education, uh, try and try and garnish a lot of support for other states as well. You know, not just Nevada. We're we're all in it together. I mean, even when I'm I'm here in Nevada, you know, I'm constantly on the phone with guys in Utah and Colorado and, and doing the best I can there and writing legislative letters. Um, you know, we were able to to whip one of the bare legislative items that came up a couple of years ago. Our our legislature meets biannually, so every two years, um, and we try and stay ahead of ahead of topics and do a lot of offensive work versus defensive work on the legislature um you know we've got some bills that we would like to write coming up to support all dog hunting all dog sports you know if you run sled dogs or you have you know canines or you have stock dogs if you've got a working dog and you want support we're we're here for you and we just ask for support in return um and hope that we can we can keep it going another couple hundred years you know is there a website for the uh, Nevada Sporting Dog Alliance? There is. You can just Google Nevada Sporting Dog Alliance, and it it pops right okay. up. We uh, we do some, and we're also on Facebook. We do something called tailgate sessions, um, which is some great educational videos. I've done it on the the early neurological simulation program I do on our young puppies. Uh, we've done everything from micro tripping and freeze branding to training tips. We try and try and do quite a bit on that. Um, try and put some educational videos together and, and not even so much, you know, I think a lot of people focus on the, the anti-hunters and you're never going to change their mind. In all reality, the anti-hunters is a very small group, a very powerful group that shouldn't be underestimated, but we're not trying to change their mind. We're trying to reach the people who are uneducated, not, not to be confused with ignorant on the subject, just uneducated and try to show them what it's really like and say, Hey, you know what? You want to go on a hunt? come along you want to see this come along i mean freeze branding we actually did a video for a tailgate sessions on freeze branding 
and I think a lot of people don't realize, you know, they assume hot branding. Oh, it hurts. I actually put an initial on my wrist in the video. It doesn't hurt. You know, it's not, it's not a, a cruel thing. It's another permanent form of identification to help get our dogs back. So it's just little things like that. You know, we try and try and be as educational and scientific as we can with a lot of things uh, and try and reach that general public that's going to ultimately be making the decision when it comes to votes. You know, and and hopefully if they know better by the time they see what can sometimes be deceptive wording on a bill, they'll say, wait a minute, I saw a video that explained this back in the day. You know, that's, that's kind of the ultimate goal. Exactly. And Becky, you certainly are a great representative uh, for the for the dog people out in your part of the world. Uh, what we need in every state, every region across the country are bright, articulate people that are clear thinkers uh, that um, have common sense, have the ability to communicate and to reach, as you say, that person that's in the middle that one that's on the fence, the one that maybe have, hasn't even uh, considered the issue of, of hound hunting or whatever, and to be able to, to educate those people so that when they do step in that uh, voting booth, they say, you know, I know a little bit about this, and uh, these seem like some pretty sharp people, and uh, I'm going to vote with them on that on that issue. So uh, I I applaud what you're doing out there. Just keep it up. And I just wish we had more people across the United States that have the vision that you do and have the abilities that you do and have the willingness uh, that you do to to reach out and try to protect this sport and preserve it and promote it for those generations to come. Thank you. I I sure appreciate it. It it can be a... A tough thing trying to reach a, a group of people that really doesn't even realize this way of life still exists or sometimes ever existed. So I really appreciate it. Yeah, Mike Mike Thorman describes it as the farther we get away from the farm. That's how he describes that. You know, farm life, people are more and more uh, urbanized now and, and have lost touch with that. And they, they get their meat from the meat trees. It's already neatly wrapped in cellophane wrappers and and kill their steaks with checkbooks and stuff like that. So, uh, it just, like you said, it's not, it's not stupidity. It's just, it, it's more of ignorance or, or not being ed- educated on this style of life we have. And then we get misrepresented on, on every, on a lot of levels. And it's just hard for people to find that, that the truth out there about what's really going on with these sports so i i applaud you too becky and it's something that steve and i have have been involved with for a number of years and and we know that there's frustration and and it seems like we're always playing catch up and i often ask you know when are we going to wake up and realize that that now is the time to start doing the groundwork for that next attack that's going to happen three years from now you know get involved now be involved make yourself available and follow the lead of people like you that are trying to anchor our sport and not give up any more ground on it. So good for you. I appreciate it. Are you guys a referendum state or are you, are you a, uh, just a a legislative body? Do you know? Oh boy. You're on the spot on that one. We've actually got a, a guy over in Reno who does most of our, our legislative stuff. And I, 
I want to say we're a legislative state, but don't quote me on it. Yeah, that is that is where my ignorance shows on that one. Okay. Um, yeah, referendum states seem to be in the in the center of the bullseye for for anti anti hunting legislation, animal rights legislation, because they've already figured out that ninety eighty five to ninety percent of the public is uneducated in this sort of thing, and and they're easy prey to sway with a few hand-picked Facebook videos and a media campaign and they can throw millions of dollars at it and all they need is the general consensus from the public get stuff on the on the ballot for a general vote and and they can wipe out wipe that out so referendum states are definitely in the crosshairs absolutely you know and you've got me questioning my knowledge on it now because thinking of the stuff we've gone back and done and I'm I'm definitely ignorant on that part of it um but you know and like you said and that's where I think you know, social media has become, oh boy, it's a double-edged sword because, you know, people can, it just takes one picture and a little editing and you can you can block the facts out and put whatever you want in there and, and it gets shared, you know, anything bad gets shared like wildfire and the good things, they fall through the cracks. Right, right. Well, social media definitely has its, has its place. We would have, I would have never found you. Uh, and cleave mm-hmm. if it were not for social media and the way you represent yourselves there and and the stories you post and your sense of humor and and everything so it's it's definitely can be a good thing but you know i just saw a, a video yesterday of somebody dragging a raccoon across a driveway and and people you know five pups five pups that were were chewing on it and everything else and i'm like just stop shooting holes in the boat you know, we want you to yeah, we want it, you to be it, on the boat. Just don't be shooting holes in it while you're. There's no reason for that. Absolutely, and I think sometimes it goes back to. You know, my folks always told me, character and integrity is what you do when no one else is looking, and I think that's something that there's always a pair of eyes somewhere nowadays. You know, and I think that's something people need to need to take into an account i don't think you know and once it's put on a cell phone or put on social media it, it never goes away it can always be pulled back no matter what and i'm sure that these people i know some some of the people that have done this and i know their hearts and i know they're not doing it maliciously or, or anything like that it's just that they are not thinking long game here of of the kind of impacts that that can have and and certainly we're not trying to say hide and be ashamed of what we do or anything like that it's just Use some common sense. You know, realize having the the ostrich theory that we can stick our heads in the sand and think that it'll never come back to bite us. We ought to just be able to watch the evening news and and see how some of the videos and emails and text messages get drug up on certain people, and and they're always there, like you said, and and they can they can come back to bite you at the most inopportune time. That's for sure. Absolutely, something to think about for sure. Yep. Steve, you got anything else? Well, no, I, I'm enjoying this very much. And I know I was at one of the registries when the, one of the, the breed associations were having, uh, uh, bear bays. And I saw what can happen when the antis can get in, shoot some video, edit the video, sensationalize it, put it into a short film that, uh, is very, very damaging and not an accurate portrayal of the actual uh, event. So it 
we can't be we can't say enough about being careful uh, protect this sport you know I always like to talk about protecting it promoting it and preserving it and you know it is a precious thing for those of us who've ever heard the cry of a hound on a trail doesn't matter if it's a bunny trail or a bear or a mountain lion the thrill of the chase that organic experience of nature and all that is a very very precious thing especially to those of us who love it as we do and uh, i just uh, for uh, five seconds of fame to brag on a puppy or something on an inter- on a social media site is a very uh, a very cheap uh, way to to lose. I mean, you know, it it doesn't compare to the uh, prize that you're going to lose in the process. So if we can yeah. just encourage people to think, you know, just to think Absolutely. before they act. Yep, a picture is yep. worth a thousand words. It's up to you if they're good words and bad words. And you know, that's I'm not hunting for social media. I'm hunting for conservation. And and for a lot of people don't realize that aren't involved, what would happen to the species we're hunting if we Absolutely. didn't? Just sure. happening there. Sure, right. Absolutely. Yeah, this is Absolutely. an entire podcast by itself. But I, I'll I'll kind of wrap this topic up with this thought. You know. I am seeing more and more people that are looking for the organic lifestyle. You know, they're taking more of an active role in, in growing their own food. And and people that you would never suspect, uh, you know, they're raising their own chickens or gathering their own eggs or they're raising their own pigs. And we're such, such a critical time right now, and it's up to us as houndsmen to put this sport in the right, right perspective so that we can show them how they can be involved with this. I'm seeing this all across the hunting ent- industry. If you look at, at some of the groups that are popping up and you look at their gatherings, for most of us back east here, my age, we would say they're hipsters. And yep. and and to to judge them based on that, is possibly a, a, a wrong way to go about it because they're actually interested and and they want to have the discussion and and they're they're becoming more and more involved so now it's up to us the experienced outdoorsmen sportsmen houndsmen whatever you identify yourself as there to light the path for them and show them the correct way and what the real values are and what the truth is about the things that we do and and it's not about a bunch of rednecks standing around watching watching the thrill of the kill and and stuff like that all the time there's nothing wrong with a with a good picture that that um shows shows your hard work and shows you with your hounds and and a lion or a bear or, or a tailgate full of raccoons uh there's nothing wrong with being proud of that but it needs some it needs some perspective and it needs some explanation and nobody's going to give that to them except the people like us that are houndsmen. Absolutely. You're 100% correct on that. Well, what else have I missed, Steve? Have I got anything else we got to cover before we have concluding thoughts here? No, you've shined the tree very well. I don't know. Well, of course, Cleve talked about hunting lions at night, so he knows what it's like to shine the tree. 
And Becky, <laughs> with her coon hunting roots, she understands that terminology as well. Right. I I guess it's time for us to wrap it up, Chris. Um, it's been a great show. I've enjoyed it tremendously. And, uh, you know, uh, the thing about this podcasting is, man, we're meeting a lot of people that I would enjoy being in the company of. And, Absolutely. And Cle- Cleve and Becky sure are those type of people. Uh, do you want me to wrap this up now? Put a bow on hey, it? Hey, real quick, I just want to sh- uh, outline that or showcase, maybe shine a spotlight, as you like to say, on their website is www.bullcreeklionhunts.com. Is that correct, Becky? It is. Yep, that and Facebook. It's the same same address for Facebook as well. All right. So, listeners, if you, if you want a true adventure, I would encourage you to contact Cleve and Becky and get your hunt scheduled and go out and see Northern Nevada and pursue some mountain lions. Steve, I'm leaving it to you, buddy. All right, Chris, Becky and Cleve, we've got a track here. We're going to cut the hounds loose, but I'll tell you what's going to happen. No matter where the dogs go, you follow your hound and I'll follow mine.